Hello, Graham Norton here on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose for another podcast. Let's get cracking. Sir, uh-huh, Sir Ian Rankin joins me to talk about his new book, The Rise. Show chef Martha has another one of her best-off recipes. This time, it's butternut squash risotto. And there's another round of our brand-new competition, Big in Japan. And Marie McCurlin is here. We'll be putting our heads together to answer your dilemmas in Graham's Guide. Let's cross to her now. Uh, hello, Maria. Why does it always rain on me? I don't know, Maria. I mean, Travis have got it right, frankly. They really That's have. all it's been doing. When people talked about global warming a million years ago, and said, yeah, it's coming. We all thought, oh, we'll be on the beach all year round. <laughs> Forgetting that, no, no, what it means is that everything's going to be messed up and there will not be any seasons anymore and it will rain all the time. Climate change. That's it. It's Blade Runner, isn't it? It's Blade Runner. We can't deny it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to hold, Captain. Hey, have you had a nice week? Uh, not too bad, thank you. Apart from I have, a, as you can see, a black nose. Is that where you headbutted someone in a pub? <laughs> yes, a Glasgow kiss. Uh, it was, you know, just instinct that kicked yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. No, I bent down to tie my shoelaces at the same time that my dog decided to put full force in his little back legs and leap onto the bed and our nose and head collided. So your dog headbutted you? My dog headbutted me. Wow. Yeah. Peeing everywhere. He was a nice dog, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> peeing everywhere. Another. No, peeing is getting better. Just one oh. accident this week. Oh, well, that's marvellous. Oh, hopefully it'll be a, a, a thing of memory that he used to pee everywhere. <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh, well, but that's good. In a whole week, only one accident. That's very good. Yeah. And then, and of course, the violence. Yeah, GBH. Yeah, then, then attacking you. Yeah, there's that as well. But yeah, <laughs> apart from that, And um, tell me about your week. Uh, well, the highlight of my week yeah, yeah. was I went to see Nicole Scherzinger in Sunset Boulevard. Now, I've heard that it's amazing. Like, I can't tell you. I was mildly curious because I'd read some good things. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh, you know, I got some friends in from uh, America. And I thought, oh, they'll like this. Nicole Scherzinger. Of course they will. Answer or whatever. They're gay. Of course yeah, they will. Yeah, of course they are. Uh, so I uh, went to see it. And it is the best thing I've seen in years. I mean, I'm very glad for her because a bit like the lady, what's her name in Sunset Boulevard? Norma Desmond. Norma Desmond, thank you. Um, you know, Nicole Scherzinger, this is hard. She was in Pussycat Dolls and now judges on various things. So this is great. This is giving her a oh, shot in the arm, I'm but, sure. But the Jamie Lloyd production, it's, it, it's thrilling. Like, we went into the Savoy and we didn't know what to expect. And, you know, there was a, a guy beside us and he'd come down. He was a big fan of, um, you know, the, the musical. And uh, he, he just said to us, I've come with an open mind. <laughs> like, yeah. And I was like, ooh, good luck, Nicole. He's got an open mind over here. Oh, he was punching the air, oh, well, there you standing are. up. I mean... It, the audience just became electrified through the thing. I, I mean, can't. I can't say enough good things about okay. it. Okay. If you're if you were at all curious about it and you were thinking of going, go. It's only on till the end of December. Go, go, yeah, go. We're all we're all booking tickets now. I have to say as well, by the way, because I watched your show on the way to work this morning. There was a lovely family on the train saying, "We saw you all watching Graham Norton show." They were all going for a big birthday party. Uh, no, not party. Celebration for the granddad. <laughs> To um, Spurs ground. Stamford Bridge, is it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, and to walk over the bridge and things like that. Anyway, they said we we love watching Graham on the show. Give him, give him our love. I Aww. can't remember their names. Or where they're going or why. But uh, apart from that, it's lovely. It was a very delayed journey. And they weren't actually a family. <laughs> Just random people. Yeah. Oh, it was a football team. That's yeah. right. They were going to play a match. <laughs> um, I would, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger 
Uh, he is value for money. Yes, he I is. mean, you could not stop him talking last night. You know how you normally go, I talk to you for a bit, and I talk to you for a bit, and I talk to you. Uh, everybody that he talked to, he had something to say. He's got a clock for Jay Blades to mend. But, you know, he gives good value. He's not one of those guests that slouches on the sofa and just says yes and no. And also, it's Robert been, it's De Niro, been, I'm thinking of you. But also, it's been a while since we've had a big Hollywood star on the show. So it was just, you know, nice to kind of go, oh, yes, go on, tell us about Hollywood. Yeah. Tell us what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about being in movies. We haven't heard in ages. <laughs> I know, COVID and then, you know, the sag Afro strike. Yeah. But also, if you haven't watched Graham's show, uh, TV show, it's worth watching just for Judy Dench alone. I know you mentioned it this morning, but she, from memory, she's 80-something now. 88. 80, oh, I mean, from memory, uh, just did a beautiful sonnet. And I know you said you didn't know what it was about, but I did. Um, <laughs> and it's, it, for, I don't know what it is. She's, she's mesmerising. Yeah. She just has that kind of stillness and that voice and the truth. And there's just something about it. So you, you kind of go, that's why you're a star, because you are brilliant. And also she's nice. Lovely. Lovely. She's a lovely... I want her and Arnold Schwarzenegger to do an action movie together. We look forward to that. <laughs> the, the old people action movie. Go, ow, my hip! <laughs> Virgin Radio. Now, you need to pay attention this morning okay. uh, because this is quite complex. Dear Graham and Maria, two weeks ago I was contacted by someone who told me that my mum had a secret baby which she had given away as a teenager and had only told four people. It was my mum's second baby, a daughter. The person was not known to me, but they knew my family decades ago and felt that someone needed to know. Why, busybody? I have one older sister, one older brother and a younger sister. I've always believed it was just the four of us. Before I acted on this information, I called my aunt to verify the story. She laughed at me and said it was impossible. My mum was 16 when she had my older sister and potentially 18 and a half when she had her second child. Two children when she was not even 19 and out of wedlock in the mid-1970s. Even though my aunt had said no, the person who contacted me was adamant. They gave me a potential birth date and I searched the birth records and found an entry which was possibly a match and ordered the birth certificate. I received it and the person on the certificate is my half-sister. My mum's name and my nan's address were also on it. My three siblings don't know and this is my older sister's full-blood sister. It's quite hard to keep being you know, in touch with I'm all following of this. it. I'm following good, good, it. good. I genuinely believe that all three of them have the right to know about their other sister. But I know this news is going to wreak so much damage on my family. How do I tell my mum that I know? We don't have the best relationship and we've not spoken in three months. How do I tell my siblings? I want to be sensitive and approach this situation with kindness, as I know it's going to be extremely painful for my mum and is going to hurt my siblings profoundly. I'm also aware that our new sister, who is only a few years older than me, may not know she has a whole other family and that I need to be mindful of her needs too. I am genuinely heartbroken and don't know what to do next. Any help or guidance would be greatly appreciated and that, for obvious reasons, is anonymous. I mean, this is a whole can of worms, isn't it, really? And you kind of think, oh, this part of me, and I'm sure a lot of people think it, just let sleeping dogs lie. You know, just don't throw the grenade in at this stage of life. Because I'm assuming, 50s, 70s, they must be, you know, 50-odd now, 
your half sister that you've just found out about will ha probably have her own family, etc. Um, what's clear, though, to Anonymous is that she needs help with this. It's not something you can deal with on your own. I I'm worried because you don't have a good relationship with your mum. I just want you to keep it to yourself for now. I I have been looking up, and I think the listeners might be able to help on this, various organisations that can help you dealing with this. You know, it's all very well finding the long-lost family. Then how do you integrate? The Salvation Army do quite a good job on looking for lost people, lost families, um, and they also have a counselling service which will help you navigate that, navigate what to do next. I don't think you can have this on your own shoulders because it's too much it's too big I mean I, I don't know why don't be heartbroken because it's something that happened and if anyone is going to be heartbroken it will be your mum who has carried this with her since uh, the mid-70s you know she obviously had another baby in between the 16 and 18 and a half when she was what 17 and couldn't cope understandably so this will be making her crazy you need to get some help with this and I would say if you are going to act on it I would contact the half-sister first because she may not want anything to do yeah. with anyone and in which case you don't have to throw the hand grenade into your family yes and it can you it will be your secret and that's a heavy secret to carry but you can not mention it to anyone ever again. Um, that's all kind yes. of what I would say. What do you think? Well, I, I think you're right. I think you contact the the half sister, this mm -hmm. this newfound sister. I mean, who's this other person? I, I really want to find out who the hell is that other person yeah, who, who thought to tell you. who rolled their sleeves up and got away. I know what I'll do. Like, what the hell I are they think thinking? That they are something to do with the half sister. They must be. They must be. But anyway, I think now that it's all out there, you need to contact the the half sister, and you need to say, "Look, this is who I am. This is who you are. Your mother is still alive. If you want, I, I, I explain. I haven't told my mother. But I don't have a great relationship with her. But just if you wanted to try and contact her." She is still alive and this is who she is. And then your mother can decide if she wants to see this woman or not. Yeah. And then if your mother decides to do that, you'll find out that. And then, then you can do it bit by bit. Yes. And then it's not a grenade. It's not a kind of like a, everyone knows everything and your mother's worried about how the rest of the kids are reacting and who thinks what and judgment and blah, 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 blah. It's just a very drip gentle thing and if the woman as you, you know as you were saying if the woman decides right I, I'm not interested in contacting my mother I've lived my life I don't want to talk to her um, then I think you do just keep a bitch dumb and then maybe when your mom is no longer with us you could say to your siblings look I here's a thing I didn't bring it up because, and explain why you didn't bring it up because the woman didn't want to get involved in your mm, family and mm. da, da 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 because of course we all watched Long Lost Family with Davina and uh, Nikki yes thing um, and uh, we see how people get in touch with their families yes I but, was but, looking but, at but, in, but, in, but in Long Lost Family so this isn't Long no, Lost Family know, because the person who started all this isn't the Anything mother to do with or, them. or the daughter. Or are they? Um, I think there's definitely some sort of relation and they're escaping things out. But I was looking at the statistics. A lot, a lot of people do not 
want to get in touch yeah. with birth parents. I mean, extraordinary, really, because you'd think you'd want to find out where you came from, but a lot don't want to upset their, you know, parents that brought them up, etc. or they don't want the mess in their head and the complications of it all. Yeah. So it's not something that's a given, that you go, hey, I've got another family. Hey, there's somebody who's contacted us that is related. It's not always that way. And also, I also would long lost family, if you kept the cameras running for another day... <laughs> Everybody just be sitting on their hands going, okay, so uh, that's you, that's uh, that's my mother. That's us introduced. That's uh, my mother there, uh, okay. Uh, well, I'm going home now <laughs> to my actual mother who raised me. It is very difficult because he's, yes, blood relative, but nothing in common. You yeah. know, it's very hard. You have to make those things in well, common. You know, Well, I mean, I imagine a lot of people have been in weird situations like this. Families yeah. are complicated, so help I is would, needed. I would also like the listeners oh, yes. to know, to, to let us know, maybe somebody who works in this, which organisations Anonymous can get in touch with to help her through this. Their responses, part one. Uh, Cathy says... I'm adopted and would advocate that the person who wants to contact her sister uses a proper agency. This isn't all about you and your family. You must consider the other person. She's not your sister. She's a blood relative. And actually, that's a really good way of phrasing that, Cathy. She is a blood relative. She's, you know, there is no sibling bond there. Surely, if you speak to anyone first, you have a very quiet and private word with mom. Tell her you know because someone told you. Then bring it up internally with the rest of the family if mom is okay with that. Then reach out to the half-sister. They don't know anything yet. Mom already does. Keep the news small as possible until people are okay with the idea of letting more people know. And that's from uh, Darren. And Sally and Chester says, Caution, caution. The half-sister may not know she was adopted as a baby. Contacting her without looking into this could be catastrophic. Much care needed. You are so right, Sally. That is absolutely uh, 100%. And, and again, it goes back to what um, Cathy says about using a proper agency. I was adopted, and although my mother is the person who raised me, I have never even seen a picture of my real mother. It's as if a door is always locked. I think it's best for your inquirer to talk to your mom. Try and mend the rift between you and get her views. But please, ask your half-sister if she would like a photo and some details about her real mother. It's very important when you know nothing. Thank you very much for getting in touch with that. And final word to Michaela from Munich. Uh, Regarding the long-lost sister, you may want to ask why this person informed you to start with. The secret may already be out, and somebody is seeking to get it out into the open. Either way, it will come out, and if your siblings find out you knew for a long time, the damage will be greater than just the news that they have a long-lost sibling and their mother lied to them. I mean, it is just a can of worms, but I think absolutely uh, use a proper agency if you're getting in touch with this person because, uh, yeah, you don't know uh, the backstory. You don't know what's going on there. Yes, that is me. And I have the second problem ready. Uh, This is not quite so difficult. Okay, good. I would like to think, but maybe it is. Dear Graham and Maria, I have lived in a lovely cul-de-sac for over 20 years and neighbours have come and gone. Hmm. We now have such a wonderful community spirit down the road and occasionally have social gatherings where we can all catch up over a glass of wine and have a moan. Ugh. 
That sounds all right. All right. We have one neighbour, okay, here we are, who we all talk about as he annoys us by constantly making a terrible din on his saxophone for literally hours every day of the week. We all thought at first that it was a phase as he started during Covid times, but now we're two years down the line, three surely, isn't it? He's still continuing to serenade us. Now I love music and have been told that I'm a very patient and tolerant person. Who told you that? (laughs) But I've been so close to knocking on the door and telling him to shut up. I've restrained myself from doing this as I know I will get verbal abuse. Abuse. There's a nasty streak to this person and all of us believe that if we upset him by telling him to stop, then there could be consequences that none of us are willing to risk. What the... It's night of your drama. Yeah. The person in question has made it very clear that he does not want to be part of our social gatherings. You can blame him. <laughs> Apart from me getting hold of a foghorn and blasting it out every time he plays that first sound, I'm at a loss as to what to do. Please help. And that is from Eleanor in Reading. Well, Eleanor in Reading, I think, you know, the council will say that you must, this is what they tell you to do, you must log the noise, um, you know, on this day from what time till what time, and you must, you know, get a decibelometer or whatever and they it call it. won't reach the decibel thing. Uh, well, It'll will just it? be annoying. It I... will if you stand next to him while he's doing it. If <laughs> yeah. you knock the door and say, I demand you let me use my decibelometer. What is it called? I don't know. I don't know either. Someone will tell us. Um, and then you log it and then you send it into the council and then nothing happens. <laughs> I think that's what happens. Um, noise abatement people will never come round to you because uh, nobody cares. Yeah. I think that's the thing. I mean, you can try and reason with him and say, could you play between these hours of the day and so we can all do something else or be out of the thing or whatever. I mean, it doesn't sound like he wants to reason with you, but it has to be a collective... Um, approach because you're all clearly frightened of him. He's only playing his saxophone. I know. And also, he's not playing in the middle of the night. He's not keeping you awake. So, Eleanor in Reading, I would, if I was you, I would have a lovely wine and moan gathering uh, out in the cul-de-sac and punch the air with glee that the worst thing in your life is that someone's playing the saxophone. I mean, it's not even like he's got a big drum and bass thing or he's playing, he's having raves in his back garden. It's not, you know, it's it's I a know, ma- but the opening bars of Baker Street can get very annoying <laughs> played wrong. What about having a Christmas carol service and asking him to accompany you? Um, no, because then he'd have to rehearse. On, on his saxophone. <laughs> I mean, it's like, don't make him join in, but he doesn't want to come and be social. I mean, he clearly hates you all. Yes. But I think he hates himself more and he hates his saxophone because he's not very good at it. <laughs> he's a loner. I, I, I believe a saxophonist is not going to be a social person, are they? I mean, it's just, it's a lonely. True or false, are all saxophonists <laughs> loners? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I just, I just think it, you're very lucky in that it's just a saxophone. That's all I would say. Because it could be so much worse. You've had it great in this cul-de-sac for over 20 years. Um, and, you know, and also if he only started a thing, he may get bored of it or get good. Well, he's been doing it since lockdown, so that's quite a long time to be rehearsing. And she says it's all hours of the day and night. I think there's previous with this neighbour, frankly, so I think that's why he's not responding to you in the manner um, to which you would hope him to. 
Try and kill him with kindness. <laughs> I wonder where we're going yeah, yeah. there. Kill him with try kindness. To, try to kill him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, rub you, poison on the tip of his axe. You saxophone. know what I'm going to say about a cake. Oh, don't. <laughs> and then it, you can't blow it with a mouthful. Yeah, fine. Cr- crumbs will block the saxophone. <laughs> Get someone to break in and steal his saxophone. I don't know. I, I think Graham is right. If that's the only thing that's really worrying you in life. <laughs> yeah, be very, very happy. Dara sponsors. Part two. That's what's happening now. Part two. Laura's in Hampshire. I would be brave. Let your friendly neighbours know you are going to go round to your saxophonist neighbour to ask if he could limit his playing as it is upsetting the rest of your cul-de-sac. Just be polite and if he doesn't change or is rude to you, at least you've tried your best. And your neighbours will be aware and look out for any kind of retribution on his part. If you don't try, he'll just carry on. Oh, Laura. I mean... We, I think we all, I mean, we, I've never met this man, but I think we all know how it's going to go. <laughs> there will be the sound of a door slamming and then the sound of a saxophone. I think that's, that's what's going to happen here. Uh, Art Young lives in Crouch End. Hi, Graham. Eleanor could play some loud music, put in her AirPods and listen to an audiobook or podcast, hoover the house or go out and do some errands when this fellow plays his sax. Sorted? I know what you mean, Art. It doesn't seem like the biggest problem in the world. But look, it's big in Eleanor's life and she's asked us for help, so we're trying. Uh, Steve uh, is in Chipping Sodbury. Now, they will know how to deal with a, a noisy saxophonist. Hmm. Horrendous sax playing. Can we just confirm you don't live next to Jules Holland band practising? Leave Jules Holland out of this. How did he... Stop it, Steve. Nothing wrong with a bit of saxophone, but be thankful it's not drums. Are you sure he isn't playing a tape CD on repeat? Well, it doesn't sound like anyone would record this music. (laughs) Enjoy it and take a tambourine round and join in. Now, that is annoying. That, I mean, that is quite a funny idea for you and the neighbours to set up the rest of the band in his garden out the front. A drum kit, double bass, tambourine. Yeah. Uh, Martin Frestage. I play the saxophone myself. Ooh. And I'm always conscious about annoying my neighbours. I regularly tell them to let me know if it's a problem, but apparently not. The best compliment I had was, I can actually tell what tunes you're playing now. <laughs> Yeah, as as Martin says, faint praise indeed. Why don't all the neighbours all get a sax and then play all in unison very badly at night when he stopped? Uh, Dashers in Burko. Uh, yeah, that is something you could do, but not a very good idea. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. I am joined now by Ian Rankin. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Good, good, good. So this is a... So is this a new idea that Amazon are doing these original stories? Yeah, what they want is they want original stories that maybe stretch the author a little bit so get out of your comfort zone, do something different. But they've got to be short. They've got to be readable or listenable uh, in about an hour and a half. So perfect for a commute or a car journey or a short train ride. Yeah, because, I mean, it's not short. It's, it's, what, is it 80 pages? Uh, yeah, something like that. But yeah. There's probably quite a lot of space between the words, Graham. <laughs> It's about 10,000 words, I think. Okay, this is called uh, The Rise, and uh, slightly unusually for you, this is set in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I wanted to write about oligarchs, and I wanted to write about dodgy money, and uh, London seemed the perfect place, much, you know, yeah, I know. (laughs) When we think of London, we sometimes think of it in those terms, and here we are sitting at the top of a high-rise building. Yes. Uh, But it's specifically these ones that 
spring up uh, in in nice parts of London where people own apartments but don't actually necessarily live there. It's just a place to park their money safely. And they tend to come from all over the world and some of them have got quite shady pasts uh, and shady presents. So (laughs) I thought, I want to write about these people, these kind of super rich people that we never really see. And obviously you've you've written short stories before, but in this, I mean, it's a... I, you know, I was reading and thinking, wow, he's thought of this amazing cast of characters. You've got all these backstories. As you were writing it, were you thinking, mm, this could be a novel. I'm, I'm a fool to myself. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Um, I mean, it started life, I was thinking of it as a film uh, originally. I thought it'd be great, kind of like J.G. Ballard's High Rise, yeah. but with oligarchs. Um, everything falling apart and getting chaotic. Uh, and then Amazon came along and said, have you got anything that's a bit different? And I thought, yeah, I could do that. So, um, and I loved the characters. I loved Gish, who's the main character, who's a, a young uh, woman cop in London who cycles everywhere because it's quicker and, of course, better for the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody teases her about it. Uh, and, and you've got the older cops. You've got a kind of seven situation with the older cop and the younger cop. Um, but she's, I, I, yeah, you're right. I, when I started writing about her, she really got under my skin and I thought, why? Why have I put her in a short story when I could have put her in a novel? Yeah, but also it seems to me that the amount of, you know, uh, brain power of figuring out the crime, because it, it's not a quite a locked room crime, but it's almost a locked room crime. It's all in this building. But the amount of plotting you have to do is similar, surely. It is. And then the, it's all about condensing it. It's all about almost doing it like a poem where you just, you know, a minimum, mil, minimal words to get across what you what you want to say. So a character has to be sketched in very briefly. Um, but you try and do your best. And, and I liked I liked the challenge. I thought it was a, it was a good challenge. And I liked writing about London because I used to live in London when I was poor. And now I visit <laughs> London and I've got a bit of money in my pocket and it seems like a very different city to Isn't me. Isn't it though, Ian? It really is. <laughs> it's a very different city when you've got a little bit of money. I I used to live in Tottenham, for goodness sake. And I commuted I commuted to Crystal Palace every day to go to work. Yeah. A 90-minute each-way commute on public transport. Yeah. It was fairly brutal. Yeah, London's a very different place. Yeah, it really is. Well, if you're living in the rise, how lovely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you've done short stories before, because uh, you've done, you know, you published collections of them, did you approach those short stories in a slightly different way than this one? Yeah, yeah, this was a, a slightly different length. I was given a few more words, and it, it did sort of rage out of control. I think originally they'd said they wanted 5,000, it ended up being double that, and then some, uh, because I was just enjoying the situation and the character so much, and I just kept finding more things I wanted to do with it. A short story, I mean, the one wonderful thing about a short story, if you're a writer, is that you can start and finish it in a day, and you will have put down on paper something that's never existed before. How extraordinary is that? I always think that with, with 26 letters of the alphabet, Anybody can write a sentence or a paragraph that's never been... You know this, you're a writer. You can write a sentence or a paragraph that's never been written before. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, that that, that little bit of beginning something is amazing because, you know, just whatever you've done, it wasn't there before. But a novel is terrifying, right? Because a novel is like a big, long race and you're going to be at it for months uh, and you're going to start to lose track of, oh, my God, which character is this and what were they doing and can I come back to that and do I need to go there now? Um, with a short story, you can contain the world pretty much in your head before you begin. Yeah, but I mean, there's no, you're no, you're not slowing down in any way. You're oh, still, I am. Are you? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I used to write two full-length novels a year when I was young and full of. Oh right, yes, you're very, you're very slow. Yes. Yeah. I'm, now, now it's a novel every two years. Yeah. And my wife insisted this year was my sabbatical year. I wasn't allowed to do any writing, so we've been doing a lot of traveling, a lot of touring and stuff. While we've still got our limbs and our faculties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so next year, I've got to. I've, in fact, soon I'll be starting to to mull over the next book. And here you are, Ian. You know, you're. Uh, You've won all the the golden daggers, and you've done, you know you are such an incredible crime writer. But uh, to begin with, 
you you didn't consider yourself a crime writer. No, I didn't read crime. I think I'm the only, still the only crime writer I know who wasn't a fan of crime fiction before they started writing it. I thought I was writing the great Scottish novel. I was a postgraduate student at Edinburgh University, and I wanted to update the theme of Jekyll and Hyde and bring the story of Jekyll and Hyde back from London to Edinburgh, where I felt it belonged, because it was written by Robert Louis Stevenson, a very yeah. famous Edinburgh writer. And it just happened that the main character was a cop. He was a detective called Rebus, and I didn't think much of it. And then when it was published, it, I looked for it in the bookshop, the local bookshop in Edinburgh, and it was on the crime shelf, and I was horrified. Where it was, I put it in the Scottish literature section. I would lift it out and put it in the Scottish literature section, and then go back the next day, and it was back in the crime section again. So I thought, well, I must be a crime writer. So I started reading crime fiction then, and only then, and, and liked it. I liked the sense of place. I liked the strong storytelling. Yeah. I liked the fact that crime fiction can take on big themes. Um, it can be a comfort read, or it can take on very big, dark themes. I liked all of that. So I thought, why not? And what, I mean, that was in, I think, what is it, 87? Oh, yeah. 87, the first book came back. Like, it's like, I can't quit you. Like, how the hell, I, like, Rebus just in your life, you've retired him, yeah. and no, he's back, and now you've just done a deal for some more Rebus yeah. books. Yeah. What is it about that character and you? I don't know. He's a very, I, I like hanging out with him. He's a very complex character, and the only way I can find out more about him is to spend more time with him. So, and I keep wanting to find out more about him. I've still not got to the centre of what makes him work. And he keeps changing. I decided early on he would live in real time. So he's he's young and vigorous and able to get in fights and things in the early books. And then he retires and suddenly he's got COPD and he can't even climb a flight of stairs. But he's still an interesting character. His life has moved on and he's moved on with it. So I just find him really interesting to write about. And also, I always think, right, what do I want to talk about? I want to talk about this theme or that theme. Who's the best person to do that for me? The answer's almost always been rebus. But at some point, either I go or he goes. One of us has to go. <laughs> I mean, you are writing yourself into a corner, aren't you? I mean, yeah. yeah I mean, he's, well, yeah. And in, in the, the, the end of the last book, very much so. Yeah. Uh, people are waiting for the next one so that they, it can be revealed what, if anything, happens to him. Because he, he is written into a corner in the, the, the previous book. Anyway, but he's a good character. He's a good, And people seem to like him. And that's certain. I don't want to let people down, Graham. Well, yeah. You've invented a character people love all around the world. Yeah. You, you can't just throw them away. And when did you become aware of this idea of, of sort of tartan noir? When did you become aware that that was now a thing, that there were all these Scottish crime writers it, it was it was gradual I mean at first it was people like me and Val McDermott and then uh, and then lots of other people joined the fun because we started to win prizes and sell books I mean at first when I started I couldn't think of very many Scottish crime writers and certainly none that were selling or hitting the bestseller lists but there's something about Scotland it's dark it's got that that Scandinavian noir aspect to it yeah but also we're capable of having great fun so you know plenty of Scottish crime writers like Alexander McCall Smith write very light crime novels so you've got everything you've got everything from very light crime novels to very dark crime novels contained in this very small country. Um, and the tartan noir thing, I remember I, I went, an American author called James Elroy, and I went up to him at a convention and got him to get, was going to get him to sign one of my books. And I said, I'm Ian Rankin, I write tartan noir, which is like your kind of stuff, but set in Scotland. And he said on it to Ian Rankin, the king of tartan noir. And then I pretended to everybody that he had invented this term. So for years, everybody thought that James Elroy invented the term, but I think I invented it and gave it to him. You're not in the band, are you? There's a, there's a tartan I'm in noir. Another, I'm in another band. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm not in the covers band. I used, well, in fact, I think my band is now gone. I'm in a band called Best Picture. I'm the vocalist. Singer would be <laughs> putting it too strongly. They just not told well, you. Well, COVID came it. along. And COVID came, and we, you know, we did our last gig in December 2019, and then we've not had a practice session since. So I think, but we did, we did release a single. 
So, excitingly, although it's never been played on Virgin Radio, who knows? Well, now we've missed a trick here, because now I, I should be able to go, well, here it is, but no. You can't, no. No, here it's not. I think I've got the only copies of that single in existence <laughs> sitting in my loft. Send them in, send them in. We'll play them, we'll play them. Uh, the Rise by Ian Rankin. It comes out on Wednesday, the 1st of November, as an audiobook and as an ebook. Will it be published in physically as well? No. Uh, eventually, hopefully, yes, but there's a few years when Amazon and want the, the rights to do it as an ebook and an audio. Yeah, yeah. And also, I suppose they might collect them together as the an Amazon original uh, series. Nice idea. I'll put that too. Just on. a thought. Uh, Ten, just throwing it out usual there. Usual 10%, yeah, yeah, thank you very much, Ian. Oh, uh, very quickly, congratulations on being a sir. I had no idea that you've kept that very quiet. No, well, I don't think I did keep it quiet. Uh, None of pr- us knew. None pr- of us knew. Oh, right, well, Princess, Princess Anne did me in June, July, <laughs> and uh, it was all very nice, and it was at the Palace in London, and it was terrific. And so I'm following in the footsteps of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle the other Edinburgh crime writer. Um, I'll never be as famous as him or sell as many copies, but I'm, I'm trying my best. I tell you, you're getting there. You're getting trying there, sir. Ian Rankin, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much for coming into the tower and uh, safe home back to back to Edinburgh. Big in Japan on the way, but first, ding, ding. Uh, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. Have you had a nice week? I have. I've been up in the Peak District this week. Oh, very nice. Which has been quite good, getting me in the mood for like proper comfort food because it's a little bit, a little bit wet, a little bit grey, mm. but beautiful green... But you want to be by a big stove making something like what I've made today. I know. I'm looking at it. I'm thinking the only thing that would improve that is a nice glass of red wine. Oh, yes. Oh, lovely. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Mm. <laughs> and it's so easy to prepare. <laughs> they don't want to bring you a coffee about now, but maybe if somebody could get a wine. Yeah, somebody would like red wine. Uh, no, even for me, it's a little early. Uh, right, what have you made? So this is a butternut squash risotto. Okay. It's got a little topping of crispy kale and pumpkin seeds, but that's not in the title of the recipe, which is why I gave an awkward <laughs> yeah. pause. I was like, I feel like I should do more description here. Oh, wow. And it's the centrefold. It is in the middle, I know. Oh, wow. It's got staples in it. It's, it's so fancy. <laughs> you can pull it out and you can keep it. You can frame it and do whatever you <laughs> like with it. Well done, you. And this is your recipe. It is, yes. So So when you say best ever, are you dealing with the whole idea of risotto or are you dealing with just doing a, a butternut squash one? It's kind of a mixture of both. Obviously, we're in squash season. We're in pumpkin season. We really are. You can't look left or right anywhere without seeing one or the other. So it was, can you make something that features squash? And my favourite way of cooking a squash is putting it in a risotto. I just think that it just is such a lovely sweetness that risotto, when you have a lot of it, if it's very, very savoury, can be a bit overpowering, which mm-hmm. is why it's often mm-hmm. a starter in a restaurant, I think, because it's like a little a little portion of something really intense. But when you add something sweet like butternut squash that adds a bit of substance, it means you can just keep eating your risotto like you would pasta, and Woo-hoo! I'm all for that. No, I'm, I, I think I might make this. Um, uh, so, and the, the, the kale, so the kale gives it a bit of crunch, and is it quite cheesy, or is it... Quite cheesy. Lots of parmesan in there because it just really lifts a dish like this. But I've gone with a bit of a kale and that I've roasted up the butternut squash seeds to put on the top so that there's... I can't believe you did that. No way. So I cleaned, <laughs> cleaned I the whole I can't believe you did that. Honestly, not as hard as it sounds. Really? And it adds a nice little crunch. But they're so slimy and the yellow <laughs> bits are so stuck on. Really? Just put in a little sieve and give it a... Really? Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> it's worth it. But I love also topping this with meaty things. So this is a good vegetarian option. But if you are a meat eater or you have people in your house that are like, I'm not touching it if it doesn't have meat in it. Bit of pancetta on top works really nicely with butternut Lovely. squash. Or some roasted chestnuts if you're getting nearer to Christmas. Stick a prawn in. Uh, so, Martha, explain how we make this. So, we're starting with our butternut squash. You mm-hmm. can use any kind of squash for this. You can kind of get those lovely assorted squashes, acorn squashes, all these different crown print squashes, different colours, and they all work really well as long as they're an eating variety of squash. So <laughs> You don't get a gourd. I wouldn't go for a gourd or even a cooking pumpkin. It just won't you have it won't have the same level of flavour. So you want a cooking squash, then you want to cut that up into little moons, scrape out the seeds, and I keep them to roast a little bit later. They are delicious. <laughs> I have to say, I've ne- I couldn't imagine the faff of doing it, but they are delicious. <laughs> Graham's like weighing it up. Is it worth it? <laughs> How delicious? No, they are very very nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I save those in a little bowl on one side for later on. Cut the squash up into kind of moon side little little half moons or little pieces. Toss it in some olive oil, then into the oven for about 35 to 40 minutes, where all of that lovely sweetness will start to come out and become really lovely and caramelised. Gorgeous. Whilst that's roasting, we're going to start on our risotto base. Now, risotto is a proper, like, Sunday afternoon. I'm going to stand and stir, and you have, and it's therapeutic, but you do have to stand with it. So yeah. not the kind of thing to just chuck on and then, you know, pop out yeah. and do other things. Netflix on a laptop. <laughs> You're good. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Glass of wine, Netflix on a laptop, stirring your risotto. Yeah. Um, so we're going to start with the onion and celery so you get that for nice and finely chopped goes into a pan with some butter about 10 minutes until it's nice and soft then we're going in with our arborio risotto rice mm, the real stuff you want the real stuff if you use basmati in this kind of recipe it doesn't quite have enough starch in it to make that lovely creamy sauce because the amazing thing about risotto is normally it's not got any cream or anything added to it but yeah. it tastes so creamy and that's because you've like massaged all the starch out of the rice so the rice goes in toss that so it's nice and coated in the butter and onions and then some white wine so one big glass of white wine mm. stir that through once that's evaporated we are then going to start on the whole stirring shebang where we're going to put in a, a ladle full of vegetable stock stir it then when it's absorbed we go in with the next one and you want to keep doing that for about 25 minutes until the rice is al dente give it a little taste does it have a little tiny bit of bite to it when that happens you can stop adding your stock and then we are going to add in that lovely squash so take the squash out of the skin i'll do that afterwards because if you try and do that before peeling a butternut squash is not worth doing <laughs> Well, see, isn't Don't that funny? <laughs> I couldn't be bothered roasting the seeds, but I do peel. A, peel I do peel squash. a butternut squash. Yeah. Wow. I quite like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like washing a baby. You just hold the big just thing, <laughs> holding it there, and then off you go. Yeah. Give it a good little scrub. Yeah. <laughs> I'm get you in the kitchen next time. To, <laughs> next, I have a squash to peel because I hate peeling squash. If I can roast it in the skin and then just like tease it out with a spoon afterwards, I will definitely do that. Oh wow! Okay. But whatever camp you're in. Yeah, pick pick okay. your chimera yeah, method. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you want to add that. This will turn the risotto its lovely orange colour. Then we're adding some parmesan and the remaining butter. And then you want to let that sit just for a couple of minutes to just really absorb and solidify. Whilst that's happening, we're going to roast off our little seeds. So give them a nice wash. Get rid of any of those stringy bits. Yeah, right. Put them into a little <laughs> baking tray with a little bit of olive oil. Five minutes in the oven. And then we're going to add in some kale and some parmesan. Toss it all together. And then another couple of minutes in the oven until the kale is nice and crispy. And it's just a really nice little garnish over the top that makes your risotto look a little bit exciting. Is that a super hot oven that you've put that kale into? It was about 200 degrees. Is that all? Yeah. It's the wow. same temperature as the squash roasts at. Yeah. So you only need one temperature, one pan. Yeah, yeah. Because that, I mean, I, I yeah. I, 
I, I, have I ever tried to roast kale? I don't know. But that's really nice. It's very nice. It's a nice way of cooking it, I think, because yeah. boiling it sometimes makes it a bit watery and a bit soggy. But yeah. crispy kale. Crispy kale. Oh. You can't go wrong. <laughs> uh, if this is making you think, mm, I'd like, I, I, that could be my supper tonight or tomorrow night, uh, then go to waitress.com slash showchef and you can see that recipe or indeed all of Martha's recipes. And you can also check out the visuals on our socials at Virgin Radio UK. It does look delicious. Uh, you're back tomorrow. What have you got for us? Something else along the squash route, but something sweet this time. Oh, is it some sort of pie? <laughs> it's not a pie. <laughs> okay. It's not a pie. <laughs> I'm glad it's not a pie. I, I would know. be very disappointed. St- stupid pumpkin pie. <laughs> Get out of here. Big in Japan. Are you big in Japan? Yeah. Big in Japan is the name of the competition, and we're celebrating Waitrose New Japan menu. Basically, we get some callers on the line. We ask them what's big in Japan. If they get that right, then we'll use our Japanese gashapon machine. You heard me. Uh, to find out what prize they win. A little eggs get dispensed, and then inside the eggs is the prize. You could win £250 Waitrose voucher to get a Japanese feast, or you could win uh, a voucher for chicken yaki udon noodles or teriyaki pork belly slices chicken yakitori skewers I mean there's lots of you'll win something there are delicious Japanese prizes in here okay uh, first up I believe we've got Tina hello Tina good morning John Graham how are you <laughs> I'm very well <laughs> that was stage fright that was stage fright I was anticipating and then I blew it hard <laughs> I, I, I mean yes if you don't know my name it doesn't bode well for the questions but anyway you know I, you know, I certainly do I, we, I listen to you every Saturday morning and Sunday oh bless you Tita where are you well I'm in East Wickenham here with my husband John lovely and where are you from originally um, United States with the accent. Um, Michigan, myself, and my husband from California. Wow, when did you? When did the two of you come over here? Uh, the second time around, we came uh, 30 years ago, 1994. Wow, and uh, and you've lived your whole lives here. Wow, a- about a third of it for sure. Okay, very good. Uh, right, Tina. Uh, it's very simple. I give you a multiple choice question, okay? All right. And mm-hmm. then uh, you you answer it, hopefully correctly, and then we'll get to the 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 gashapon machine. Okay, here we go. Sounds which perfect. which of the following is Japan's biggest sports stadium? A. Wembley Stadium. B. The Olympic Stadium. C. The Nissan Stadium. Let's take number C, uh, the Nissan Stadium. All right, Tina, let's find out if you're right. Oh, you are. (laughs) Well done. See, it's not hard, is it? It's not here. Okay, now, this is the exciting bit. I put the coin in, and I twist this thing, and then one of these little eggs shoots out. Hang on. Come on. Where is it? Oh, here we go. Uh, Get out of there. (laughs) <laughs> Get out! Here we go. Okay, it's out, it's out. Here we go. Uh, and I'm opening up the... You've got a yellow egg. And I'm just opening it up. And Tina... Tina, in East Strickland, I can tell you, you have won chicken yaki udon noodles! Oh, fantastic. I knew fantastic. you'd be thrilled. I knew you'd be thrilled. Is there any, I am indeed. Is there anyone you'd like to say hello to while you're on the radio? For sure, my husband in the other room uh, listening on the radio and uh, everybody I know and um, I wish everybody well and particularly you, but also uh, peace in this world at this trying time. 
Oh, Tina, we so say all of us. Thank you very much. And uh, you're quite it, welcome. My pleasure. All right, take care of yourself. There goes I love Tina. Ta- love talking to you. I, I Thank lo- you, Graham. Lovely talking bye to bye. you. Yes. Thank <laughs> you. Cheers, Tina. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Uh, there goes Tina with her uh, chicken yaki udon noodles. Here comes Suzanne. Hello, Suzanne. Good afternoon, Graham. Konnichiwa. Oh, oh, you're just showing off now. You're showing off. Uh, oh, I Google. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where are you, Suzanne? Uh, I'm in Brackley in Northamptonshire. Lovely. And what are you up to uh, on this Saturday? Well, I've got the dogs to walk shortly and I'm enjoying a peaceful day on my own. Everyone's out. Oh, so gorgeous. It's just me and the dogs today. What dogs do you have? English pointers. <gasps> so that's a lot of walking, I'd have thought. Well, they think they're lap dogs, unfortunately, and they're quite large. <laughs> they keep you warm in the winter months. They it's do, nice. they do. Yeah, it's a two-dog night. Uh, all right, Suzanne uh, in Northamptonshire, let's ask you your question. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> now, the, the bullet, right, the bullet is Japan's fastest train. All right. What is its top speed? They are very, very, very fast trains. I'll just... A, 50 miles an hour. B, 100 miles an hour. C, 200 miles per hour. What do you think? I'll take I'll take C, 200 miles per hour. Do you think so, Suzanne? Okay, let's see if you're I right. I do. Okay, let's see if you're right. You are right! Yes! Woo. That is amazing, isn't it? 200 miles an hour. That's there. That is so fun. I've been on the bullet train in Shanghai, actually. Oh, well, there you go. You knew. I didn't even need to help you. All right, I'm putting the coin into the gashapon machine. Let's see what you're getting. Oh, it's a it's a red thing. Get out of there. Okay, got a red egg. I'm opening it up. What have you got? You have got... <laughs> You'll enjoy this. You've got mushroom... Goiza. I think that's it. Yes. Ooh. I know. I know. You were rolling your eyes at the chicken noodle noodles. <laughs> now, now you're thinking, oh, they sounded good. Uh, you've got mushroom goiza. Uh, is there anyone you'd like to say hello to while you're on the radio? My family here all in various parts around Northamptonshire and in the car and um, husband who's drumming somewhere and, and uh, my mum and dad in Devon and my mother and father-in-law and everybody else. Oh, very good. Well, listen, uh, enjoy your dog walk, Suzanne, and you can go home to some warm mushroom goiza. Uh, Enjoy. Thank you, Graham. (laughs) Thank you very much for playing Big in Japan. Big in Japan. Oh, you're big in Japan. Thanks so much for listening today. You can catch me every Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 on Virgin Radio. Follow us on all our socials to keep up to date and make sure you check out our YouTube channel too. Just look up at Virgin Radio UK and you'll find loads of great interviews and live sessions. Until next time. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio.